Now, before we begin uh, the substance, let me uh, introduce to you our, uh, our three panelists and then audience are uh, going to ask you a question as well to see um, what you think about this topic and get us understanding a little bit more about your, your thoughts on this topic before we get into it. Um, but let me quickly introduce our, our panelists um, before that. Um, first, I have uh, Professor Juan Kidan, um, who is a uh, is Fulbright Scholar and a tenured Associate Professor of Law at the Seattle University School of Law. We're very pleased to have him with us today. He teaches and writes in the area of international arbitration and litigation, uh, immigration law, international law. And he's just he's published a comprehensive book on dispute settlement in China-Africa economic relations, uh, especially focusing on investment and commercial arbitration. So he's a perfect panelist for this question. Um, and he has a new book on diverse cultures in the new world of international arbitration, pulling uh, on those experiences. He has taught uh, in various different um, law schools and also practiced in Washington um, at Piper Rudnick, which is now DLA Piper and uh, a number of different practices. So he continues to consult in these areas with law firms. We're really happy to have him today. Thank you so much, Professor Kidan, um, for being willing to spend your time with us and share your insights with us. Uh, next, I have um, Siddharth Chatterjee, who is the UN Resident Coordinator for China. Um, he uh, took office as the Resident Coordinator on 16th of January 2021, so is, is fairly new to the post, but has really got into the post with gusto. Any of you who follow him on Twitter or WeChat uh, will know that he's posting every single day uh, regularly on the different people who he's meeting and different um, activities uh, that he's engaged in in China. Um, he, is, he has more than 25 years of experience in uh, international cooperation, sustainable development. Um, and he was previously, he's coming from uh, Kenya uh, as the resident coordinator in Kenya to China um, and also held other leadership positions across the organization, including um, as resident uh, representative of UNDP and uh, UNFPA in Kenya as well. He was also regional director um, for the United Nations Office for Project Services in Denmark and a range of different countries who worked in um, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, um, and also uh, worked in the Red Cross uh, movement as well. Um, so he, we're again, very, very pleased to have uh, Mr. Tatterjee with us. I'm gonna call him Sid. Um, he told me I could. I could. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us as well and, and, and taking the time out of your busy schedule to discuss this with us. I know you've got a lot of, a lot of views about where the future directions. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that. And last but not least, we have Professor Tang Xiaoyang, um, who is a resident scholar and the deputy director of the Carnegie Tsinghua uh, Center for Global Policy. Uh, and also associate professor in the Department for International Relations at Tsinghua as, as well. Um, he recently published a book which he uh, very kindly invited me to, to review and, and discuss uh, in a seminar. And so I'm again, very, very pleased. His book focuses on China-Africa cooperation as well, and especially through industrialization uh, and manufacturing and special economic zones and so on. So again, 
really fantastic to have you with us today, Professor Tom. Thank you so much. Okay, so now you all know who you're going to be hearing from. Uh, let's see what you all think about this topic. Um, and in our uh, in our social media about this topic, we talked about uh, the, the the webinar is entitled "Can Africa Manage China?" And I guess the question is, do you think it should? So let's see um, what's our poll for the audience uh, before we get into this. So audience, please let us know, what degree do you think African countries currently have a proactive China strategy? Um, so you've got three options there. You've got African countries all have a proactive China strategy. Uh, option two, I know of a few that have a proactive China strategy. And then the last option, I don't think African countries have a proactive strategy. So what do you think about this question? Do you think African countries have a proactive China strategy? We'll give you a few more seconds to answer. Getting quite close. And then we'll have a look at the results. The panelists can't share, but we'll ask them what they think. <laughs> We'll find out. Okay, just two more seconds. Two or three more seconds, please audience, please do vote. Okay, and I think there we have it. Should we close the, should we close the poll? Let's see what the result is. All right, so we have, right, very clear. 67% uh, of the audience think uh, that, they, that there are few African countries that have a proactive China strategy. 27% uh, think that African countries don't have a proactive strategy and just 7% of the audience think African countries all do have a proactive China strategy. So um, let's see who's right. And in any case, perhaps we can start, perhaps even go back to kind of thinking whether, what is the point in a sense of having a China strategy We'll be asking that question uh, today as well. Um, so, Professor Kadan, perhaps you could kick off for us. Um, do you know? Do you think African countries have a strategy towards China, or um, or to what degree do they have a strategy towards China? Uh, thanks so much, Hannah. If um, I didn't think. Uh, they had any strategies coming into this webinar. Now I do think they do because the poll suggests that at least 67% of the respondents believe that or maybe know some of them that some African countries do have a China strategy and I'm not surprised by that. Uh, some definitely do. And if you could just uh, look at election campaigns across Africa, especially in the bigger countries, there's always a China element, Chinese strategy, Chinese involvement in African economies is usually at a point of contention. But having a well-articulated and sustained strategy for a particular country is mostly an attribute of the world's uh, largest and more advanced capital sending economies. It's usually top down, uh, not bottom up. 
So the conditions and negotiating powers of the smaller capital receiving economies of Africa, their conditions do not permit them to have meaningful and sustained um, strategies that they could, they could, they could advance uh, at every interaction that they have with China. And their main preoccupation is to balance uh, the competing powers. And their strategy tends to focus on that situation. So the strategy is mostly on how to play that power uh, balance between you know, Western interests and these interests. That said, since the establishment of FOCAC in 2000, at the more uh, global level, I mean, within Africa, Africa has had a collective and significantly unified strategy towards uh, China through the African Union. And evidence of this is the FOCAC declarations, action plans, and some very significant issues are always on the agenda, such as state sustainability and things like that. Individually, they tend to be responsive to Chinese strategic plans. An excellent example of this is BRI. So when BRI is implemented in, in Africa, the African, the African reaction is responsive to BRI. And these, in, these undertakings are structured in very ad hoc uh, basis in a series of contractual instruments. So that is what I'd like to say at the very beginning. I don't want to take more time, but we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to this discussion. That's what I'd like to offer at this point. Great. Well, that's a great introduction to this question. Um, and I think that's really interesting that that you're saying that it's 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 not necessarily a, a full strategy in a sense, but it's a balancing with other um, with others. Um, Sid, can I come to you now? Um, do you would you agree with this? And, and would you say as well? You know, we're now in the post-COVID, we're in a COVID-19 era, still in COVID-19 era. Do you, do you think that that is, in a, if that is the correct diagnosis, is that enough? Um, is there a need to reimagine Africa's relationship to China and Africa's street, st strategy with regards to China? What would you say? Sure. Well, I think, I think what Juan Kidani said was uh, absolutely pertinent, but what COVID has reminded us that it has put the spotlight on the levels of inequality that exist, not just in the world, within countries, across countries. And I think whether it's the global north or the global south, it has exposed those vulnerabilities. But in Africa in particular, it has exposed also the, 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 the nature of the heterogeneous nature of the African continent. And at the same time, how Africa responded to COVID has actually showed a particular strength, which actually defies uh, many of those who said that probably Africa would just crumble under the COVID pandemic. And yet, you know, it kind of not just managed to confront it, but actually came through pretty well. I feel that given the reality that the, that the COVID pandemic, the economic crisis that has hit the entire world where lives and livelihoods have been shocked and it echoes the Great Depression of the 1930s. Perhaps this is the moment as we get to FOCAC by the end of December for Africa to really come together and revisit the purpose of the African Union and ensure that it has a much more robust negotiating posture. Because I think if the world is to realize the future is Africa, Africa's prosperity 
will lead to the world's prosperity, given the reality that we are going to see an emerging demographic echo of aging from Asia into, into, into the United States, into Europe. And here is a continent which is vibrant at the median age of 18. The possibilities are limitless. What we need to give reality and velocity to is how do these regional bodies better integrate and have a sustained common policy. And I think this is where China and Africa could build a bridge which could harness the entire ecosystem of good political will, of good public policies and good partnerships to really give velocity to the Sustainable Development 2030 agenda for Africa and keeping in mind the big picture of the Africa Vision 2063. Over to you. Absolutely, Sid, um, and fully agree. This is, you know, this is an opportunity, right? Um, certainly an opportunity for African countries to be, in a sense, perhaps even more demanding of their partners, given that demographic, given that shift. We, we just interviewed, we just did a video interview with um, Andrew Ali, who's the um, head of Southbridge Group and former president of the African Finance Corporation. And his, his, he was talking about you know, 15 million young people entering the employment, uh, entering, needing to get jobs every single year. You know, this is, it's very, very crucial, but also a great opportunity for that to happen. Um, who's going to take advantage? Professor, Professor Tung, um, Professor Kidan just talked about FOCAC, which was established in 2000, year 2000. Um, we're 21 years now uh, since it was established. Um, is that enough? Does China actually want African countries to be more strategic with FOCAC or in other ways and through their bilateral relations as well? What would be the benefits, but also the challenges of that potentially? Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I think the uh, uh, partner with a strong strategy will be also in the interest of China, because uh, China always uh, thinks that uh, the cooperation with uh, other countries should be win-win. Namely, through this uh, uh, trade investment, also financing, uh, lending, then uh, both part partners should be benefit should get benefits from this uh, cooperation. And in that context, then uh, partner with a strong vision. Uh, which uh, can, uh, can actually uh, secure some long-term uh, uh, benefits uh, for that country. That will also be good for the cooperating partners. So maybe some uh, examples is uh, when China now gives uh, this uh, loans uh, to the uh, yeah, to, to, uh, through Pocock. So China always, uh, actually a lot of Chinese institutes, they find it quite uh, difficult for them to have a good projects to land uh, for new infrastructure projects. Because these projects, uh, they should uh, be designed by the African partners. Only the African partners, they know which uh, 
projects uh, fit their interests and fit their uh, yeah, local conditions. But the Chinese, they like to ask the African partners and inquire their uh, opinions on that. But in order for the, yeah, but for the African partners, in order to come up with ideas, with a good uh, project proposals, then they first need to have a good strategy. They should know where this uh, uh, yeah, projects, infrastructure projects or industry investment should lead these countries to. They should not be just scattered because uh, that uh, cost a huge uh, amount of uh, like loans. And if they do not contribute to Africa's long-term prosperity, then China also is in danger of of recovering these loans, like we are experiencing for the last three or four years, we saw such risks. So therefore, if African countries can come up with a clear strategy and can uh, correspondingly provide uh, yeah, good proposals for uh, yeah, the infrastructure and also industrialization and other development projects, China will be very happy to see that. Hmm. That's, that's good news, I guess. Um, and I think, and as you say, certainly there is there is definitely an issue with how, with the kinds of projects and the financing that much more is needed for sure, and much more uh, there's certainly much more demand. Um, how to drive up the quality of that? That is a real real challenge. And strategic being more strategic with with China and being clear about what those needs might be could be a good way through. Um, Professor Kadan, though. I mean, you have been in in many of these arbitration discussions, and um, you know you see the the balance of power um, between Chinese partners and African partners. Um, we've just you know there have been reports uh, just in the last week um, pulling together a number of different contracts um, for of of China, China and other developing countries, not just African countries, I have to say, um, and they all have, you know, spe special clauses and, and so on. Would being strategic, having a strategy, would it help uh, with these sorts of issues? Um, or, or is there something more that's needed, would you say? Um, yes. Um, as Sid suggested earlier, having this collective front uh, increases the negotiating powers of the, the African states. Um, you know, in any kind of relationship, economic relationship, the negotiating power obviously has significant implications in the contractual terms. And am I connected or? You are, yep, yep, we can hear you perfectly. So if you look at some of the instruments, the, the, the contractual instruments, and we can divide them into two sections. So one is the pure loan instrument. The other one is just works a contract. It could be construction works or any, any a number of other types of uh, uh, contracts. There is invariably uh, a 
difference of balancing, uh, 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 I mean, uh, power balance between the two. So if uh, take an example, the dispute resolution uh, clause, it usually says it is uh, either in China before CTAC tribunals uh, or something along those lines or Chinese law applies. So those obviously are a function of the negotiating power. And this is not unique to China. It's the same, every lender would have that negotiating power to um, make the recipients enter into those kinds of contracts. We haven't seen very serious contractual disputes between uh, Chinese companies or Chinese lenders and African states. They are emerging. There are two claims, uh, investor state claims. We will see how that plays out. But generally, to make them well balanced, I think the negotiating powers have to be uh, also balanced. And you cannot do it in any uh, in a meaningful way if they are negotiating individually. So these instruments have to be public, and the African Union needs to have access to them, and they need to be scrutinized. And as Professor Tang suggested, a well strategy, a well, uh, you know, a, a country that is able to have its own strategy is a better partner for China. Mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, what I'd like to add. Thanks. Um, so we we already have a Q and a, a question that's come in um, from our audience. Um, please, uh, audience, please keep those coming in. We will definitely come to them really soon. And um, they're touching already on they're already touching on some of the questions, some of the points that we're discussing. Um, so that's wonderful. Um, Sid, we're we're starting to talk a little bit about financing and and the rest of our the other webinars that we've held. Um, have been about financing, not specifically with regards to China, but on other issues. But coming back to coming back to China, finance is not the only issue, of course. If you're thinking about a strategy um, with China, from your experience, um, what are the other areas that African countries can and should be working with China? On in order to take advantage of this opportunity and to do and to do better, to negotiate better and get more out of their relationship with China. What are the other areas beyond finance, if any? You know, I see Africa as the ground for the new Marshall Plan. If you look at the old Marshall Plan for Second World War, what it did was three things in Western Europe, which had been ravaged by two world wars and in between that was the great depression too which had a, which which is an economic crisis that we are now witnessing but perhaps the world witnessed then but it lifted europe first of all out of poverty it opened up new markets for the united states and you know it really rearranged the ecosystem of of europe and therefore it led to the, the, the foundation of the European Union, you know, there was a belt and road of sorts which happened in Europe too, and that's how Europe got connected. Now, I see precisely that opportunity in Africa, and therefore I see enormous opportunities for the world to actually unite. I actually see better convergence of the US, of China, of the European Union coming together and looking at Africa from a real scalable public-private partnership point of view. 
you know, the China-Africa relationship is not recent, Hannah, as we know. I mean, it goes back as way back as the seventh century when the first ex direct exchanges and contacts took place along the east coast of, uh, of, of, of Somalia and, and, and Kenya. And, and then 15th century, uh, we actually saw more robust relationships. And then after, you know, China really, as uh, when it became a true republic, so to speak, in 1949, perhaps some of the greatest outreaches were done from China to Africa. So the relationship is time tested in many ways. What I see is the opportunity is that in the next 10 years, here are some statistics. Agro-business in Africa is going to be a trillion dollars worth by 19, by, by, by in the 2030 agenda. We are going to see a trillion dollar worth. Can Africa and China come together and use some of the technology and innovation and data that China has been able to use to leapfrog its own economy? I mean, what China has managed to do in the last 40 years, and particularly in the last seven years of lifting close to 90 million people out of poverty, is simply remarkable. There are many lessons that Africa could learn from this, and China, Africa, and the rest of the world could converge around this one specific area you were talking about 15 million young people looking for work every year that is an absolute reality i actually co-authored a piece with the former president of ghana john mahama and you know this is a demographic dividend which must be reaped otherwise we are going to look at many more africans getting onto boats and heading to europe simply because 50 percent of food production in africa is lost to post-harvest and then, you know, Africa is a net importer of $70 billion worth of food. Can we change that narrative? I believe China can help change that narrative. Take the issue of public health. I believe, you know, COVID has reminded us that universal health coverage becomes mission critical. We heard that into two sessions from the vice premier comparing health and wealth. And this is not new. It was said by Herophilus way back in 265 BC about the primacy of, of healthcare. And that is what allows civilizations and humans to survive and thrive. It's going to be a $400 billion enterprise in Africa over the next 10 years. Take the space of affordable housing, which is going to be about $700 billion. If you look at the manufacturing sector, the green economy, the blue economy, I mean, these are trillions and trillions of dollars enterprises in the next 10 years. How do we take advantage of that? And this is where we need to see the convergence of big data technology and innovation and the true rearrangement of multilateralism which really springboards Africa towards that next generation of, of, of prosperity where everybody will, will, will prosper in this. So therefore, a rich Africa will mean a rich world. An impoverished Africa, there will not be any longer a rich world because those markets will no longer be, be available. So it is best to invest in it now. So I have seen what China has done in Africa, and I would commend China for some of the remarkable things that Africa, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, as I've seen in Ethiopia or in Kenya or in Uganda, in Sudan, in, in Zambia, in South Africa is simply remarkable. And I think what we now need is the enterprise of convergence, the enterprise of trust, the enterprise of public-private partnerships to really take this to scale. Africa's population will be 2.4 billion by 2050, of which 900 million will be young people. It is perhaps the largest market waiting of consumers and producers. I mean, in the next 10 years, the consumption, just, uh, uh, just consumption in Africa would be close to two to $3 trillion. Now, where we can be, where I see the new form of multilateral, where the United Nations can play a role, 
is how we can work with the United Nations country teams in Africa, in, from here in China, working with the government, working with the private sector, and bringing it all together. We've seen this work in Kenya, and I want to quote you a very clear example to this. When Huawei, Merck, yeah, Philips, GlaxoSmithKline, you know, uh, Safaricom came together, we were able to reduce maternal mortality ratios in some of the highest burden counties by one third. It just showed the spirit of public-private enterprise and its transformational effect. And that's the future I see now. Over to you. Sorry, I took a little long. No, no, that's absolutely fine. I mean, you know, this is this is very important. And, and, it, and you've gone also into the question of what role for international organizations there might be in supporting that, you know, kind of coming up with ideas, making sure these things go forward, sharing experience across different countries. Um, and, and I guess it, it's, it's needed. Professor Tang, you have, um, you've had experience of working with so many Chinese and, and observing this and interviewing so many Chinese um, companies, private sector in particular, who have gone to African countries trying to, you know, do their best and, and find an enterprise um, working in the special economic zones. How much would it help um, from, from their point of view practically I mean, you, you talked about the kind of demand side and the win-win. Is that good enough? Um, what, what would be special about an African, African strategy for China specifically versus an African strategy for other countries or for other, other, um, other investors, for instance? What's special about Chinese investment, if anything? Uh -huh. uh... I think for the China has a, a special advantage uh, in Africa because China has itself just uh, experienced uh, a very fundamental uh, transformation in its own economic structure as well as a social structure. So during last 40 years, China then grew from uh, uh, mainly agri agrarian uh, traditional economy and a quite backward economy then to uh, industrial powerhouse. And uh, this experience actually helped a lot of Chinese enterprises to see the potential of Africa. Because uh, when they arrived in Africa, they see that uh, Africa looks uh, just like China 40 years ago. And uh, then therefore they uh, are more confident in uh, Africa's future. There are a lot of uh, uh, Europeans or Americans who maybe just uh, see risks and uh, see the uh, stagnation in uh, Africa. So for China, uh, apart from this uh, confidence in Africa's uh, future, China also has uh, the uh, economic structure which is uh, complementary to Africa's. Because uh, China's uh, manufacturing, uh, some of them are still uh, based on the labor intensive ones, although they are reducing and some are quite uh, low value added, not uh, so capital intensive. Whereas uh, those uh, uh, industries, the uh, industry sectors in the West, then they are very capital intensive. And so with this uh, uh, 
uh, labor intensive and uh, like uh, low value added sectors, China can find easily the uh, entry to African market because uh, currently the uh, African consumers, they are the local market as well as a, uh, as a production basis, Africa can just uh, start from this uh, rather the basic uh, uh, manufacturing and industrial sectors. Mm -hmm. So China can, uh, China's industry uh, has is a good match for this uh, uh, African's uh, industrialization uh, stage. While the yeah, Western com uh, companies, maybe they just are too advanced and uh, yeah, the complementarity is low. So uh, with this uh, being said, then I think the uh, strategy for Africa for yeah, targeting at uh, the Chinese uh, investors is uh, trying to uh, start from this uh, uh, yeah, the pragmatic uh, um, uh, yeah, from uh, this uh, uh, to take advantage of this complementarity mm -hmm. and uh, to just uh, start from uh, not to like uh, look uh, at uh, some fancy things uh, or uh, but more like uh, to have uh, the um, to uh, to uh, target at this uh, uh, initiating uh, industries and then to uh, focus on this uh, complementarity of the economic structure on both sides. And on the other hand, then learning the experience of this uh, social economic transformation uh, in China and then try to understand how this kind of transformation can also then uh, work in Africa. This is also the other side of the uh, uh, Africa's strategy uh, targeting at China. Yeah. Right, that's very helpful. So we, we have a few elements of a strategy um, that, that it seems that you're all suggesting. Um, obviously financial um, industrialization, and jobs, uh, also potentially public-private partnerships around uh, health, for instance, but also agriculture. Um, Professor Kadan, do you have any other suggestions in terms of areas for a strategy or strategies? Yes, so uh, Professor Tang mentioned in Chinese pragmatism economic pragmatism and something that um, the African economies uh, could actually uh, borrow from and also a careful scrutiny of the development model that Africa, uh, China is following. Yeah. And there is, uh, and if we are proceeding to the recommendations state, uh, then I could outline a few of those. I don't know if Hannah, that is where we're headed right now. Um, we, we can head there. Um, we, do have, we do have a couple of questions coming in from the audience, and I'm going to encourage audience again to please share your questions um, before we move. We will go to a point at which we're asking what recommendations 
um, our panelists will have for, for African leaders, um, African governments. Um, but maybe, maybe I'll ask you one other question then um, before we move to that, which is um, if, if African countries don't have, or if there's not this collective, you know, let's say an, an Africa-China strategy or, you know, a specific Africa-China strategies for, for particular countries, what would you say are the risks if, if that doesn't happen? Are there any risks or is it okay to just kind of just keep going? There's FOCAC, FOCAC is going to be every three years. What, what's the point in a sense? Hannah, I believe that the, the question of strategy for each one of these African countries is actually a function of their domestic political dynamics. Right. And at the very beginning of my remarks, that's what, that's, that was what I tried to, to get at. Because if you look at each one of these African countries, Chinese involvement in their economy and a dominant role is a subject of great political controversy. So whatever strategy emerged as one party prevailed in an election could be completely different when that party is no longer uh, in leadership position. Uh, example could be, you know, Zambia, you know, Ghana, and places like Ethiopia. Yeah. So you talk about so these things are very dynamic, and it is also situation dependent. When I say that, a very simple example is if a railway project fails to yield the kind of return that the parties anticipated, it could become a huge political, uh, you know, contention. It is in Kenya. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things. So we cannot underestimate the dynamism of this. It's not like the United States where there is this fixed strategy towards such and such you know, countries and this is a 10 year plan according to China. So you can't find those things in many of these African countries. Although at any given moment, it's not impossible to find very specific China related strategy, uh, yeah. but those tend to evolve and the, 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 that's the dynamism that I'd like to, I'd like to emphasize. Yeah, okay, but can, let me interrogate that a bit more because in some cases, it, it seems that there is a, a big difference between civil society and what government wants with regards to China. And then I guess the other, the other point would be, and I think this is also something which Sid might come in, in on, is what's the role of the African Union um, as a collective? Is it just, is it, is it to pr provide some more certainty in terms of strategy rather than going backwards and forwards depending on the domestic politics or, or is it something else? Um, please, all of you <laughs> on this one, but Professor Kadam first. Yes, I think there's no uh, doubt that within the African Union and individual African states, the preponderance is in favor of Chinese involvement in, in Africa. And, uh, the African Union uh, efforts are robust and China is uh, very appreciative of that, I, I'm, I'm sure. And if you just read the FOCAC declarations for the last 20 years uh, and the action plans, uh, many of them have been executed with admirable uh, efficiency. And Africa appreciates that and, and China also knows that. And the question at this moment really is, could this be sustained? The reason why question of sustainability is raised is because nothing really seems to have changed 
the 2002 action plan and like the stretch declaration reads a lot like the one that was just issued, you know, 20 years later. So there is a sense that it may have stagnated somewhere or it might have, and there is some doubt that that's now being expressed around Africa that Chinese enthusiasm in investing in Africa may not be as it used to be back in 2010, 2012, 2013. There's an, a host of different reasons and, and we don't know where it's headed right now, but those are the kinds of things that people are looking at. But in any case, the African Union is a great partner to China. Everything is optimistic. And I think going forward, as long as China continues to grow and Africa is also just like Sid described, <laughs> the growth potential is immense. So the collaborations between these two uh, sides is almost inevitable and it will probably continue to grow. How fast and under what circumstances is what we need to be discussing. Right, how fast. Uh, Sid, what, did, what, what do you think of this question on domestic and domestic versus civil society? Is there anything you wanted to come in on that or even the role of the African Union? Before we go to the yeah, audience, you know, I, I mean, you know, the politics is a reality, but politics should not become an innovator to growth. And I think in many places, sometimes that starts to falter. And if you look at the Tanzania Zambia railroad, it was transformation. I mean, seriously transformation at a time when both countries needed a loan and actually went to the international financial institutions requesting for money. China itself was very poor then and decided to go ahead and finance it. And it was, it really changed people's lives. It's regardless of which government is where. The fact of that matter is, it is how these countries utilize that railway system. And let me tell you, as much of criticism that I've seen directed as the, at, the, at the standard grade railway in, in Kenya, I have traveled on that train. And let me tell you, Railway projects don't generate profits like just overnight, they take time. Even the New York subway is in debt. You know, these things, but they provide a commercial enterprise. They connect uh, and make, you know, commerce and trade happen. Yeah. I have seen the road, which is coming all the way from the port of Lamu, the Lapset Highway, which connects through the area of Moyale, where, where, where the country teams of, of, of Kenya and, and, and Ethiopia came together in 2015 to bring peace to 36 warring Somali ethnic clans. That road, Hannah, changed people's lives. I mean, suddenly the large number of young people that used to go and join Al-Shabaab found work along those places. They set up shops and businesses started to thrive. And just the fact that one road could transform people's lives the velocity that we want in the growth of the Africa free trade area will not happen unless that infrastructure connects all of Africa, mm -hmm. which is not there. For trade and commerce, for the free movement of goods, services and people to happen, it's not going to happen without that kind of investment. So I would be saying to, uh, to, uh, to the policymakers in China, guys, you have to step up your engagement in Africa. And for the African Union, guys, you need to be better integrated in a holistic manner so that you can actually present a wider market, a wider diversity that allows for the Africa free trade area to succeed. To me, it's a win-win proposition. I don't see a dichotomy there at all. It is what is now important 
is that spirit of confidence, of trust, of collaboration, rather than that of global distrust. And you know, you can paint things in, in different ways, Hannah, but the reality is those of us who worked in Africa for a long time have seen the true impact of these investments in the, in the kind of transformation which is needed. I would just conclude by saying mm -hmm. that Africa's growth trajectory is definite if it were to have what I would term as the three Ps of robust political will, of good public policy, of good partnerships. This is where, as I said, international organizations such as the United Nations system, which is what the Secretary General expects of a fit for purpose UN, working in a country team, in lockstep with the vision of the country, supporting the country in the implementation of these programs and projects. I think the relationship now needs to become China, Africa, and the UN, and the country teams working in those respective countries, providing those capacities, be it from public finance management, to public health, to project management, to, to monitoring and evaluation, to making it happen at the grassroots. And this is where the Secretary General expects the UN to be highly ambidextrous, ambidextrous in terms of the upstream public policy and influence the policy shaping, and at the downstream, providing the boots on the ground to make those things happen. I think this would be a fit for purpose relationship between China, the UN and African countries. Over to you. Thanks, thanks, Sid. Um, and, and I think, you know, you pulled on that point about confidence, that it's really crucial. Um, and, to, and to have that continued confidence. Now look, we, we've got quite a few questions come in from the audience. Um, I want to put all of them to you and I hope we, we have some more as well. Um, but they're all, they're in very different different areas. So first of all, we have a question from um, Yang Wang from, um, the, uh, from the Global Development Policy Center in Boston University. She actually featured in one of our webinars, brilliant interventions. Um, she's asking about this, um, this publication about uh, the 100 loan contracts, I think 24 of which were African. Um, and the issue there is that the question was whether these have some uh, special contracts and confidentiality. What do the panelists think of the contracts versus other bilateral lenders? And I think that would be particularly good for um, uh, Professor Kidan to, to, to answer there. Um, and then I think uh, something, a question from Edwin, let me just take two or three of these. Question from Edwin, what are some of the specific capacity building strategies that China can pursue in supporting Africa's human resource development? I think Sid, that's quite a good one for you too. Um, and then uh, Professor Tang, we have a question from Mark Bender who says, people have been saying China's interactions have been diminishing in the last two years, especially with regards to lending, we saw uh, again, some recent numbers come out from the size carry team uh, of a reduction in 2019 of about 30% on loans. Do you see this happening or do you think it's a changing to a different form or phase? I think, again, you've all pointed to some of these points, but I think it's worth reiterating because the audience have asked. Um, so let's go with those first three questions and then we'll come back to some more um, after that. Professor Kadam, would you like to go on the first one on the contracts question? I'm guessing you've seen many of these. <laughs> I've not oh. written about them already. Uh, as my understanding is, many of the, the actual sovereign guaranteed loans are not public. Uh, we have some ideas about some of the contents, particularly the non-fiscal terms. And I can comment on those. Uh, in terms of the, the fiscal terms and the, the nature of these, these contracts, 
there are so many things that, that are being said out there. And one of them is something that I feel qualified to comment on is the um, sovereign guarantee and also the waiver of sovereign immunity uh, in case of default. That is what has been publicized that China will be taking over ports and, and, and things of that sort. That was, that was the kind of publicity uh, that, that was out there. If you look at the instruments themselves, that, that does not support that kind of conclusion. And these are not extraordinary terms. The waiver of sovereign immunity is uh, very common in, in these kinds of uh, loan as well as in contract, uh, any other types of international or transnational contracts. What it is, is if a state defaults and um, is not able to, to pay, could it be sued in a foreign court or before an arbitral tribunal? There is some level of waiver of that kind of immunity enshrined in these instruments, but there hasn't been any aggressive attempt to utilize them so far. We haven't seen any. Even rise, uh, the extent of enforceability of these awards or any kind of court judgment is doubtful. Uh, and it, is it theoretically possible that they could be pursued? Yes, but is it, is it likely? And the answer mm. is let me come to the specific question that she's asked, which is how different is that to other bilateral lenders? Because again, that would be a reason in a sense if China's very different in terms of those sorts of terms to then be more strategic with regards to that and perhaps collaborate, you know, collaborate across countries on how to how to avoid those or negotiate better on those. Is your is that your experience? It's very difficult to, to comment on that unless you actually have two instruments side by side in comparing each one. So my sense is the economic terms could be completely different. And I don't think no, any two instruments would have the same type of fiscal terms, right? It, these are negotiated commercial contracts in a way. So it required me to look at each instrument and be able to say, here's how, how they're different. And the other terms, I don't think there is anything extraordinary in Chinese loan uh, contracts than World Bank loan contracts. And I've seen each one, examples of each one of them. So there's really nothing extraordinary. Um, and uh, the, the publicity that China is exporting and engaging in this kind of date trap and all that is just uh, you know, bad publicity that they need, the officials need to respond to. I don't think it has uh, uh, in, 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 in terms of the contracts or Thanks. So that's not necessarily. Hannah, maybe, maybe just on that, yes, and yes, I want please. to build a little bit on what uh, Juan Kidani said, which is very wise, and you know his intellectual prowess um, really comes through over there. Uh, what I uh, want to just comment on is that, you know, firstly regarding confidentiality clauses, and you know, loan agreements between any country, and whether it's between China and African countries or wherever the existence of confidentiality clauses in commercial contracts is a very normal routine business practice, which conforms to any market economy. So, you know, we should not make too much of a halabulu about the spirit of the contract and, you know, and, and therefore the, the foundation of, 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 of commercial interlinkages. So I think we should not make too much of a song and dance about these confidentiality clauses because it's everywhere and it's global in nature. And second, I would just want to comment is, 
the issue of repayment guarantees and escrow accounts in, in some cooperative project. Again, that is not something out of the blue or you know, uh, something which is the same. It is pretty much routine in financial transactions. And likewise, Chinese financial institutions are asking the borrowers. After all, people are borrowing because they need the money. And that is why there's debt. And Hannah, in your brilliant piece, you brought out that you know, debt is not necessarily a bad thing because these debts have allowed these, uh, many of these African countries to progress. Now, so the Chinese financial institutions do require the borrower to deposit a certain amount of funds in the escrow account, for example. And the fund is actually the revenue that the project itself generates. Now, using project revenue to repay loans are perhaps one of the most reasonable and sustainable arrangements that you can put in place, which is different from requiring a borrower, for example, to give priority to repaying Chinese loans that does not make Chinese financial institutions the so-called preferred you know, cre uh, creditors. So th this argument that, that China uses uh, loans to influence foreign policy, again, maybe more of an imagination than, uh, than absolute reality, you know, given, the, given the fact that I've, I've spent a fair amount of time and understanding the public policy space, which, which, which after all, as the UN, I will guide and advise the host country that I'm working with. And this is, I, I have not seen anything which is contrary to that. And it's, so, um, you know, this, I just thought uh, I would put into context mm -hmm. rather than, you know, leave it hanging as a mystery for the question that was asked. So I just want to back up Juan Kodane with a, with a little more to that. Now let's come on to the human capacity thing. And I think that's a very, very important question. And this is where, again, I go back to saying, Africa has a, has a talent which is pretty remarkable. It is how we harness that talent in the space of public policy, in the space of economics, in the space of, of, of being able to galvanize that kind of dialogue and be able to undertake the, the project implementation. And when we are talking about project implementation, it is very much multi-sectoral. It needs different enterprises in different skill sets that need to come together. And that is why the Secretary General of the UN and the Deputy Secretary General of the UN is reminding their country teams in Africa, people, you have to be fit for purpose. You have to deliver as one and you have to make sure that you leave no one behind. Now to do that, we want to make sure that we are providing our African counterparts, our government counterparts, the best capacities. Let me give you an example of COVID itself. Mm -hmm. In Kenya, by the time we came to March, we knew that COVID would soon be arriving. By then, a plane load of, of supplies came in just when the complete uh, breakdown of the, of the global supply chains took place of gloves, uh, you know, um, uh, PPEs, et cetera. Um, uh, these aircrafts came from Ethiopia carrying um, Chinese, Chinese supplies, which was actually very critical at that time when we were starting an early response. What did we do? We repurposed our UN development assistance framework, took out about $45 million and put it into the public health response deployed about 150 uh, people from the UN country team to work with the government to build up the capacities in public health, to build up the capacities in communication, to build up the capacities in, 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 in financial management, et cetera. And therefore, if you notice, the first few months, Kenya's response was pretty robust. And then we went and launched a flash appeal to further beef up the social protection measures. So what is important is how can we better utilize that trilateral cooperation of the UN working with African countries, making sure that they have the best in class human capacity available. So we build up that capacity 
at the micro level and the macro level so that the structures and the systems are so primed that they continue to function flawlessly as we advance to vision 2063. So I see a critical role for the United Nations system to be working with Africa, to be working with China and bringing it all together in terms of larger public-private partnerships to unlock that real potential that Africa has. Yeah, Over to you. great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing those examples with us. Um, Professor Tang, I guess you may also have some thoughts on the capacity building side and human resource development, um, but please also do address this question about diminishing interest from China potentially. Is it is it diminishing or is it just changing? Uh, no. Yeah, I actually I think uh, for this uh, question on the interest on this uh, diminishing loans and also on the uh, capacity building, the key word uh, as the state and also Professor Kidan mentioned is uh, the key word is sustainability. So the human capacity building actually uh, it's good to see this uh, like a short term reaction and also the Chinese companies when they invest they also provide a lot of uh, this short term uh, skill training as well as some aid programs also give uh, such trainings. But uh, for Africa, I think a major pro challenge is how sustainable this can be. And uh, often this uh, company level training or this aid related trainings, after one or two years, as Sid uh, just mentioned, if there's no like uh, uh, yeah, other sectors, uh, uh, there's no this uh, industry system, then these skills, they cannot be applied into reality, into use. Then these uh, work, trained workers, they may actually, uh, they may forget all these skills. And then how to uh, train this, uh, and how to let these uh, trainees keep their skills. This is not a question just of training, but it's all actually a comprehensive uh, challenge of building the like a related uh, uh, commercial system, uh, uh, industrial uh, system, so that these uh, trainees they can continuously improve and maintain their skills. I think the same is that also for the loans. So for this uh, infrastructure loans uh, during the past uh, five, 10 years, a major problem is uh, the sustainability issues. So China, I think uh, for the uh, currently, then they are uh, even before the COVID, China Chinese government was already thinking, uh, rethinking about the effects of this uh, financed uh, projects in Africa as well as in other like a Belt and Road Initiative, because uh, uh, some of these uh, projects do not uh, uh, have uh, the revenues as expected. So that means, uh, uh, yeah, so this actually increase for the recipient countries, that means the uh, burden, debt burden is increasing. For China, then that means the risk of default. So China is, uh, is trying already before the COVID, China was already thinking of uh, having a break, but that doesn't mean China is uh, losing the interest or diminishing interest. Because I see uh, for China is uh, just uh, trying to 
wait for these countries to digest the finance this projects and try to also China itself trying was trying to think about some better approaches to enhance the effectiveness and increase the sustainability of these financed projects. And I think this COVID-19 actually provides an opportunity for the whole world actually to stop and rethink and uh, still maybe some chance of uh, uh, recovery in after the COVID. So that time with a better um, tactics and uh, uh, with better experience, I believe the yeah, new financing models maybe may uh, yeah maybe even benefit both sides uh, with uh, uh, with better results. Yeah. Okay, well, that's pretty clear. Um, not diminishing interest, but perhaps trying to think through in a bit more detail. Um, we have a few more questions coming in from the audience. Um, and I think there's some very good ones talking about sustainability. Again, Professor Tang, you might want to say something about this, about environmental sustainability. What role will that play? Um, what role should it play in China, Africa? And can African countries be more strategic about that too with China? Um, also for Professor Tang, and, I, and again, I would love all of you to come on and these questions. Professor Tang specifically, do you think that the Chinese government is changing its communication strategy in Africa? So our, uh, the Jun uh, Xue uh, says, we have observed a significant change um, in the way that uh, there is communication with regards to Western countries from the, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So is there also going to be a, a similar change, um, less low-key, perhaps more, um, um, more direct, uh, more proactive? Uh, so that's another question. Um, and uh, we've got two more others, which are, I think quite similar. So perhaps we could come coming back to this question of finance and strategy with regards to finance. Um, how can African countries reconcile any useful approaches on finance from China, the IMF, Paris Club when it comes to their financial trajectory? What should they be doing strategically to do that? Um, and another question on the financial question, and this is specific for, uh, for Sid, how do you marry, this is from Samira Salifu, how do you marry this erroneous assumption that China uses its loans or debt diplomacy to influence policy with the information that China holds uh, a more than a third of African continent's sovereign debt? So that's with bilateral lending. Um, that's not including um, it's not including private sector multilateral finance. So um, what would you say to that? Um, should we perhaps we should start with environmental sustainability in the order? Okay. Any thoughts on environmental sustainability, Professor Tan? Uh, sure, yeah. So, in fact, uh, the China's uh, environmental practice uh, in Africa and also in this uh, Belt and Road Initiative is two-sided. On the one hand, China as the largest producer of uh, renewable energy, uh, like solar uh, energy and also wind energy, China is uh, uh, also assisting some projects with this uh, renewable energy. And uh, that's uh, already a part of uh, 
quite a lot of African countries. They also see uh, the you know, opportunity of working with China on this uh, renewable energy and also on like uh, environmental uh, preservation projects because China's uh, construction capacity is uh, also very strong in that part. Uh, on the other hand, China is also uh, blamed for some uh, environmental destruction. For example, when China builds a uh, uh, hydro dam or builds uh, coal-fired uh, power plants, then often we saw some uh, protests uh, yeah, regarding the Chinese financed or constructed projects. I think they are not uh, like a contradictory because uh, both sides, uh, they are just uh, the, uh, they, they, this both sides, they are two sides of the development process because that's also what China itself experienced. When you want to industrialize yourself, you must have some like the centralized and power facility which are strong enough to provide the power need for industry and for urban use. And this is the yeah, can is inevitable for every country's development. But however, China is meanwhile always keeps this environmental sustainability also in mind. In fact, I was born in, I grew up in Shanghai. I know that in Shanghai, as early as the 1980s, the city was already uh, very proactive for the environmental protection. But however, with this industrialization process, other parts in China then they still experienced some environmental uh, yeah, deterioration uh, during the next years. So there is uh, two sides in my uh, book and also in my previous articles. I said there are two responsibilities, namely development responsibility and environmental responsibility. Uh, African countries as well as China, they need to think about uh, both kinds of responsibilities. You yeah. need to achieve a balance and not just uh, like uh, go one side. E either to go to just uh, uh, only one side is uh, uh, too partial. And then regarding I'm the- to, I'm gonna have to ask you to-, to, to, to okay. Because we've only got five minutes left. So I want to make sure that oh, we- Okay, get to all the yeah, questions. Yeah. And, and uh, regarding the communication strategy, yes, uh, China is uh, yeah, more outspoken in its uh, attitude towards the US and the West. But uh, I think for uh, Africa, then uh, at least it's a more uh, friendship, uh, uh, this tone of friendship and win-win uh, mutual benefits. So therefore, uh, in that regard, it's different. Although China is uh, actually is actively using the media and also uh, using diplomatic uh, instruments to uh, yeah, convey these ideas of uh, friendship and uh, of uh, mutual benefits. It has already been the, uh, this strategy has already been carried out for almost a decade, and it's uh, increasing and uh, improving. And uh, but I think, uh, yeah. 
intensifying. It it seems like it's even more of an intensifying of that, perhaps in comparison to other countries. Um, yeah, right. Okay, yeah. I, Professor, I Professor um, Kidan, um, your thoughts on some of the financing questions before we finish? We'll come to uh, the last one. Did you have, have any? Go ahead. Okay, okay. Um, so I so um, and said any thoughts on in terms of the use of use of diplomacy and um, versus versus China holding a lot of loans. I think we've kind of we've gone through some of this. Um, look, I think we're about to. Uh, we also had another question that just come in, but we don't really have much time. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, I'm going to ask you one last question, um, panelists. Uh, which I hope will kind of round up uh, our discussion, and then we'll put the question to the audience about uh, about um, uh, the about the issues that we've been discussing today. Um, so, if you were going to this, is my last question to you, um, panelists: If you're going to be advising African governments um, on what they should be doing on their interactions and strategy um, development with China, what would be your advice? to them and please just kind of quick fire, let us know what your advice would be in terms of a strategy. Professor Kidan. I'll just say two things. One is uh, structure every deal in clear and legally enforceable instruments. And the second one is push for institutionalization of FOCAC. FOCAC has been the way it is for 20 years but I think it needs to take some type of institutional shape going forward with the legal instruments treaty. Um, that is what I would. Interesting. And just, just to understand that, that last point on instrument, do you mean a process within Africa or a process um, uh, internationally? China, Africa. So FOCAC has been there. It's, it's some kind of forum. It yeah. hasn't into becoming an institution itself of bilateral between African Union and China. So it could be institutionalized to deal with trade, investment, commerce, all of those things. Okay. Um, that hasn't happened. And if this were to be a relationship between the West and, and Africa, it would have by now been some kind of economic uh, uh, cooperation agreement or treaty that might have. So if you look at the deals, 95% to 98% of Chinese trade relations with Africa as unilateral concessions that are not even enforceable. And the investment treaties are a completely outdated. So there is really no meaningful legal infrastructure that binds the African side with the Chinese side. They're using the old mechanisms and they need to be thinking about how to take it to the next level. Great, that's really interesting. Um, and yeah, we've, we've not talked, we've not really touched on that, um, but I hope that's a really interesting um, area for future future discussion and, and um, investigation. What that could look like, um, Professor Tang. What's your thoughts on if you're advising African governments on their interaction and strategy development with China? Uh, for me, I just have uh, two related points. The first is uh, to uh, think about uh, the economic sustainability first uh, to give it a priority. 
because uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, also means uh, uh, to uh, trying to do this uh, like in a market. Uh, yeah, it should be some, uh, although it's not a free market, not just a liberalist free market, but you should follow the market rule and use the commercial uh, manners to make this economically sustainable, including both investment and finance. The second related to that is to actually put the investors' interest as a priority. Even between China and Africa, it seems that it's the Chinese government is partnering with the African government, but it's in fact, it's the Chinese enterprises, both the state-owned and the private, they actually work both in Africa as enterprises and they have their investors' interest. And I heard for them a big complaint is that the African government, they do not take the investors' interests seriously. And that actually hurt their motivation to invest and operate in Africa in the long run. Thank you, thank you. I think that's quite a lot of foreign investors do say that as well. So perhaps China's not alone in some of those things. Um, but you're right. This is a it's a it's a multifaceted um, uh, partnership and relationship. Um, Sid, your answer. What's your advice to African governments? What next strategically? I think the most important thing over the next ten years that every African government must invest in is on human capital making sure their young are educated, skilled, there is gender equality and more and more women are brought into the workforce rather than left behind. And third, looking at avenues where they are able to co-create with China and other parts of the world, a new African economy that builds back better in the spirit of what the post-COVID-19 pandemic is talking about create a green economy, create a far more diverse economy that would give velocity and propulsion to an Africa which is young, vibrant, and has the capability of becoming the treasure trove for the rest of the world. Over to you. Thank you, thank you. And I, I actually, we haven't really talked much about people-to-people -people cooperation and what that looks like and the future shape of that, but I think you've been able to give us that, uh, that point, which is really helpful. Um, thank you so much. Um, Look, let's have the audience give us their views um, now before we close. Uh, do you think, so let's open the last poll for today. Audience, thank you for staying with us. Do you think African countries should now have publicly available China strategies? And you've got three options there. Um, each country needs, to, First option to answer, yes, each country needs to be more strategic in their interactions with China. Uh, two, they should have a strategy, but it should not be publicly available. And I think we've got you know, clear views from our panelists that perhaps that is the case already. Um, and then the third uh, option for the audience to choose is, no, a strategy towards China is not needed. So what are we going to what's the result going to be? And um, we'll give the audience a couple more seconds to vote. While they do that, just thank you again 
um, to Professor Tang Desid, Professor Kidan, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, I think we're almost there. Two more seconds. Okay, let's close the poll and let's get the results. And I think we have a very clear, clear recommendation from our audience. Yes, each country needs to be more strategic in their interactions with China. 86% of the audience um, uh, voted for that. Uh, just 14% said they should, they should have an internal strategy and we didn't have anybody um, saying that there shouldn't be a strategy. So I think we've got a clear, um, thank you panelists for uh, persuading our, <laughs> our audience of this question. I think the answer to the, for the, for the overall webinar is, Yes, uh, Africa can manage China, and and it's it's how to do it. Let's and and an a kind of opening um, in different areas for for Africans to do that for us to do that. So, thank you again to our panelists. Thank you so much to our audience as well for some brilliant questions um, and really useful uh, useful comments. Um, just to remind everybody, we this is the sixth in our series, we have our last webinar um, coming up next week, which will be focused on, uh, will be a roundup after the IMF and uh, uh, World Bank Spring meetings, looking at special drawing rights and looking at different country views on that and how, um, how special drawing rights might be useful for the African continent, if at all, um, and also in dealing with things like climate change, which we touched on a little bit today as well. Um, so please join us for that. If you haven't already signed up, um, please do. And again, thank you to our panelists. Thank you also to the DR team um, for arranging this and making all of it happen. Um, and uh, look forward to being in touch with you all again. Thank you panelists and take care. Bye everybody. Thanks Anna, bye-bye. <laughs>